Hello, everyone, and welcome to the 53rd edition of For What It's Worth podcast. I'm going to be smacking my lips and gums a lot because I just made myself a smoothie. I've only had a first couple of sips. I will try to keep it to a minimum, but I can't make any promises. All right, little little update on my day. I realize that giving an update on this day is helpful to me because it, it cuts off at the pass a lot of misconceptions about my life and in particular about my job at Blurb. The range of what people think I do for a living is actually quite humorous. It really is. Uh, There's a lot of people who have a romantic notion about my job, and there's a lot of people who have a technical notion about my job. There's a lot of people that have all kinds of weird notions about Blurb itself. Uh, It's very misleading, and it's always a constant source of amusement for me. Uh, A friend stopped by here the other day from L.A. We sat outside, mask distanced, on the patio. And um, he broke down what he thought my job was at Blurb, and it was pretty pretty close. It was it was really close on one small component of my job. And I've known him for 20 years. He's a great, great, great guy. He's an unbelievable photographer and businessman. And he was like, oh, I know what your job is. It's X. And I was like, that's pretty accurate for, for about 10% of what my job is, but the other 90% is unknown. So I like running down my day. I got up at 6, and I made my bulletproof coffee. And I started reading a book that I started last night called News of the World, which I believe is now a motion, a major motion picture. This is a really good book. I started it last night. I'm almost through with it now. It's not a long book. There are instant reminders of Blood Meridian with Cormac McCarthy. Now, that book to me is sacred. Blood Meridian is top 10 books of all time. I do not joke around about that book or about Cormac McCarthy. He has an incredible track record, and he's a very unique writer. This book, News of the World, my immediate first thought was Blood Meridian because this book, like Blood Meridian, is about someone getting from point A to point B. And a similar region, this is going from North Texas to San Antonio in News of the World, and Blood Meridian is the Texas-Mexico border. Uh, Very fantastic. It's it's just really good. If you haven't read this book, get it, uh, and I will definitely see the movie. I'm curious how they adapted this thing. So I started that. I made my coffee, read the book. And when the, when the last sip of Bulletproof coffee is over, and for those of you who drink coffee, you know what I'm talking about. The rest of the day just sucks. It, that basically is the peak of the day is the last swallow of Bulletproof coffee with a little bit of cayenne, a little bit of sp- cayenne pepper in there. And, uh, and that, I realized, okay, I just peaked. My reading is done. My coffee's done. Now the suck is going to begin to build which, you know, we all have to suck. We all have to deal with it. So I, I read this. I did just finished yoga. I'm doing this podcast. Then it's probably going to be 14 to 20 miles on the bike. And it's only, it's not even eight o'clock yet. So I need to get out early because this is a work day for me. So I'm going to try to do 14 to 20 on the bike, depending. It's cloudy and a bit cool today, um, probably in the thirties right now. But as of right now, miracle of all miracles, there looks like there is no wind. And for the past two weeks, it's been absolute gale force, like st- steady 20, 25 with gusts higher. And that's hard to ride in. So I'll do the bike and then I'll come back and I have a film. I have to shoot a film, um, which is kind of a stopgap film. It's a Q&A film because I don't have time to do the film that I really want to work on. And then I've got to do some AG23 stuff. Then I have to do my three different emails, three accounts, then my YouTube comments, and then I start my, all my blurb calls that start, I don't know, 2 o'clock or something. They go from like 2 to 5, something like that. I don't know. 
and then I start over. And so that's it. My blurb job is a weird thing, but we'll get to that at some point, maybe down the road. I'll, I'll break down all the things that I do for blurb and how it's changed over the years. Cause it's always, you have to adapt. If you're, this is a, a company that moves like a water bug. And so if you're not prepared to do that, it's not going to work for you. Okay. So let's break into this beautiful podcast. Uh, this is the Russian bare knuckle boxing of podcasts. By the way, if you're, if you're on YouTube and you're watching bare knuckle podcast, bare knuckle fighting in Russia, this podcast is for you. Um, also, this podcast is for anyone who's alarmed by the smell of a health food store. I don't know about you, but my mother was kind of a hippie. My mother is as far from a hippie as you can possibly get right now. Because when my father got radicalized by right-wing radio, my father was a Republican his whole life, but he was like a normal Republican until Limbaugh hit the air. And then my father became a complete wacko, radical right-winger, and my mom got sucked into the vapor trail. And I would throw my sister in there as well. Uh, and so my mom <clears throat> right now is as far from hippie as you could be. But growing up, my mom was very much a hippie. She had hair all the way down to her butt, like long, straight hair. Her nickname was Sacagawea. And she wore like funky clothing and she made us handmade clothes as children. Get this. You will love this. I went to elementary school in rural Indiana. And I would go to school in tight leather pants, flared at the bottom but skin-tight leather pants with silver studs running from my hip bones to my ankle. Thought it was totally normal. I would also go to school in jeans, flared bell-bottom jeans, skin-tight, the rest of them, but the bottoms flared, with the skyline of a city acid-washed into the bottom from my calf down with rhinestones for stars. I would wear that to elementary school, and no one said a word. It was totally normal. So that's what my mom was like back then. And my mom was also, uh, she read a book in the 1970s that was called Sugar Blues. So she eliminated sugar from our household. She's a great cook, so it wasn't like we were, yes, we lusted after sugar, and we, we, we were basically sneaking sugar like a heroin addict would sneak shooting up. You know, anytime we'd get to a neighbor's house or we'd see the outside world, the first thing we did was like, we'd, you know, stuff ourselves on Cocoa Pups and Pop Rocks and Dr. Pepper, never Mr. Pibb, only Dr. Pepper, you know, that kind of stuff. But my mom would go to health food stores when we were little, and she would drag us with, with her, and you'd walk in there, and there's that really peculiar smell of a health food store that just set off every alarm bell. I mean, I would have, like, my back to the wall. I'd have my fake knife in my boot and just be, like, you know, looking out for hippies kind of thing. And so I still feel that way when I walk in a health food store. Even the aisle at Whole Foods or a grocery store that's sort of the quote-unquote healthy aisle, it has a distinctive palate that um, kind of brings the hair up on the back of my neck. I go into defensive posturing when I hit that aisle. So if, if you feel the same, this podcast is for you. Hero of the week. God, where do I start? I was just listening to Tyler Childers and Coulter Wall while I was doing yoga, which is debatable if that's a, a good technique. I don't really listen. It's just this thing in the background, and it helps my mind disconnect from the suck that's building because my coffee's gone. And th I could put them in the hero category. But this week, it's Germany. My hero of the week is Germany because Germany has these anti-vaccination rallies that are combination anti-vax, anti-Semite, and marbled nicely, marbled nicely with a little bit of QAnon. And I was like, oh, we're not the only insane people on the planet. Thanks, Germany, for making me feel not quite so alone. Yes, Anti-vax, anti-Semite, and QAnon slipped in as a nice little marbled fat uh, 
throughout your your uh, protest. So yeah, thanks Germany. Good on you, uh, man. What a mess. Okay. I also want to put out for a hero of the week, uh, and I haven't thought about this person for a long time. I don't know her name. I'm not sure if I ever knew her name, but we all knew her. Maybe you didn't know mine, and I didn't know yours, but we knew of them, and they were instrumental in our lives. They were also incredibly intuitive. They were, they were with children whisperers, and that is the school nurse. The hero of the week is the school nurse, and God knows what it's going to be like when we start opening up schools with COVID to try to get kids back in to pretend like things are normal. I, I pity the nurse. I really do. I would not want to be in that situation, and it is going to blow up in our face just like it does every time we open up and open up restaurants, and then cases spike, and then we have to lock down again, and everyone acts bewildered. It's pretty simple. I'm not a, I was a solid C student, not great in science, never had a medical class in my life, and I can pretty much explain it to you with 100% certainty what's going to happen. So the school nurse... Remember, they are children whisperers because from a young age, we learn we're shrewd. We are evil, evil creatures at a young age. And if there's any way to get out of school, you're going to do it. And the first line of defense from the school is the school nurse. And you would have to go and see her and she would look at you and she would see into your soul. And you could tell immediately that she knew whether you were actually going to puke or you were acting like you were going to puke. And she could just look through and with those eyes of steel. And my school nurse was a little on the heavy side. She wore one of those little paper caps that nurses wore, and her office looked like a prison cell, and that was not by accident. That was by design. They wanted you to go in there and go, suddenly I feel okay because I'm not serving any time in here if I don't have to, and my parents were savvy too, right? You had to have a lung hanging out for them to go, oh, you're not going to school. So the nurse was like, I'll call your parents, and you'd be like, you know what? I'm starting to come around. I feel pretty good. So for the nurses on the front line, you know, I tip my hat. You, you are pretty great. Okay, the scum of the week is justice in general. Justice. Scum. How do I put those together? Well, if you look around at what's happening, and I'll just take it here in America, right? The rest of the world, you have your own problems. Don't go, don't go thinking you're immune or above the law here. You're not Steven Seagal. Justice, we don't necessarily have it. You know, these, these bad cliches of justice prevails and good will triumph over evil, it really doesn't anymore. And I think, again, one of the best things about what's happened during Trump and during the pandemic, it and I'm not joking about this, one of the very few things I will not joke about, we can st one of the, the best aspects of this entire experience is we can stop pretending. We can stop pretending we are who we claim we are, and we can stop pretending we have everything figured out, that we are the good guy, always. We're always the good guy. We're always in the white hat. We're always doing good. We're always on the right side of the equation. We're on the right side of the law. Justice prevails, good over evil. It is simply not true. The people who are acu being accused of things today, especially in the political environment, there will never be justice for what's happened. I don't even, the, the idea that something good will happen from the, let's say, take the capital siege. Will these people all be punished? No. Will the politicians who stoked it even have a slap on the wrist? No. Is there any way to really punish them? No. Will they have to resign? No. That is, if, you're, if you're expecting justice from the American system and you're holding your breath, you are about to pass out. What will be on display over the next few weeks, months, years, etc. will be evidence of that over and over. And by the way, it ain't just one side of the aisle. This has been true. It's been, I guess you would say it's been building my entire life. 
You know, when I was a kid, and I think, and I think about this a lot, World War II was an incredibly definitive moment globally, but here in the United States, it sort of kick-started an ideology that is still the, the residue of which is tainting our society today. And it's tainting it in both a good and a bad way. In a good way, sure, the idealism that came out of the post-war in, in a lot of ways was positive and good, and it united people, and people were happy, and they were productive. And, and then we did stupid things like build suburbs and all that kind of stuff. But there was a positive side to it, and that there's, a, there's still a tinge of that positivity left, but it's been derailed every decade. It gets worse and worse and worse, and the foundation and the underlying realities of life in America are evidence of that residue being false, right? It's just not applicable anymore. And what we need to do is acknowledge it and say, we have to rebuild and rethink. And we are so divided and so ideologically divided based on stupidity. Because frankly, I don't see anyone in Washington, D.C. I don't trust anyone. And you could say, well, that's just cynical. And, you know, there's good people there. There are. But they're, how did they get there? And what power do they actually have? And are they actually trying to change things? Or are they saying publicly, oh, we should really change, and then quietly saying, I don't want to rock the boat because I got a good gig going on here. And, and frankly, we're all in the same boat to some degree. We all have dreams and, and ideas about life that we thought we were going to live when we were younger. We have goals on our horizon. We look at ourselves and say, is this the life I really want to live? How do I get out of this if it's not? How do I move on? And we have bumpers. We all have bumpers around us. COVID is a huge bumper. Uh, your, your race is, can be a huge bumper. Your socioeconomic standing is a huge bumper. Your education is a bumper. All these things work to confine. And so it's incredibly difficult to, to change lanes. And again, we, we tell ourselves it isn't, and we claim that we're this ideological goldmine and this perfect, harmonious place, and we aren't. And it's, the evidence is on display. So I say, okay, look, let's acknowledge it. Let's rebuild. Let's rebuild ideologically first. Let's get the right people in there and get out all of these absolute morons that we have elected in our government and move on. Will that happen? Doubtful. So that was our, a long rambling mess of who is the scum of the week. So we had who is this for? We had our hero. We had scum of the week. And now we're talking about tech woes. Yes, my laptop still crashes, crashes every night. That's okay. Um, I don't really care. It's, it is what it is. It gives me a second to hold my breath in the morning. And occasionally it works. Like one out of 27 days, it doesn't crash. And I go, oh my God. And I hit the space bar and it comes on. I go, wow. You know, what kind of cherry on top is that for me? Okay. I did finally get my 360 camera ordered. It took three tries. I have no idea where it is. And I think it's on the way. I don't know. I've just sort of forgotten about it because maybe it gets here, maybe it doesn't, but I felt pretty good about it. Um, my credit cards both were turned off by fraud detection, which is great. So now, and I said to them, do I have to call you every time I make a purchase now? And they go, yes, which think about that. Now I get it because credit card fraud is absolutely beyond comprehension. I've had in the past decade, I've probably had four cards stolen um, two from gas stations, one from a, you know, I forget what they call those little devices they slip into the card reader. It's happened four times. You know, the credit card company calls you and goes, hey, did you just buy an inflatable clown at Disneyland and then drive to the river and buy a boat? 
and you're like, uh, no, it didn't actually. Okay, we're going to send you a new card. That's ha- that happens all the time here. I don't know what it's like in Europe. You fancy pants people thought you were super cool with the chip in your card. Well, guess what? You're, you can steal the chip cards too, my friends. So that slowed things down a weensy bit. But now, you know, I mean, look, in California, when they did redid the driver's licenses, this was pre-Real ID. I was living in L.A., and the, there were so much driver's license fraud and fakes and phonies that they were like, oh, you know what? We're going to get serious. Let's have a meeting. They had a meeting. They got serious. And they put this, like, hologram inside the card, this 3D-looking thing. Less than 24 hours, the fake ones were on the street. So, God, I love criminals. They're amazing. Okay. We are moving on to the points. We're 16 minutes in. I am lathered up like a horse in the summer. Moving cows. I'm, I'm lathered up like a cutting horse. You know, they get that white foam under the saddle, and you look and you go, that doesn't look comfortable. That's where I am right now. Let me take a sip of smoothie. There's beet powder in this stuff, which is like cocaine. So hang on. I'm smacking my lips. All right, point number one. I'm doing everything you're not supposed to do on a professional podcast. Point number one is about cycling. And I just want to say, one of the coolest things that's happening to me right now, and I haven't really done a whole lot of content about cycling, but I've done a little bit. I have the Bike Life tab on my site, the Shifter site, and I've done some Bike Life films on YouTube. They're not really well-received, but they're not really good films anyway, so I get that. But it's planted the seed in people, and I've gotten a lot of calls, not a few calls, a lot of emails, some texts about, hey, I, got, I dug my bike out of the garage, like I'm riding again. And that is one of the coolest things. A guy sent me a film a couple weeks ago, and he was like riding through a neighborhood in Las Vegas. I think I mentioned this before. Happy as a clam. Oh my God, I'm on my bike. And there's cars like whizzing by him. Great. But one of the things that happens in cycling, and I just had to write this the other day. I'll I'll tell you that story in a second. One thing about cycling is internally in the cycling world, there are lots and lots of idiotic divisions. You have road cyclist versus mountain biker versus now gravel biker, versus someone who wears cycling bibs and spandex and, you know, the cycling kit, versus the person who rides and says, if you're not wearing all wool and you look like 1970s, or you look like the guy in Breaking Away in jean shorts and a white tank top, then you're not a real cyclist. And there are people who are really hardcore about this. I mean, you're riding and they will turn and like scoff at you There's a few people on the rail trail here who have like the baskets on the front of their bike. They always wear jeans. They would never be caught dead in anything that looks like cycling gear. Everything is wool. Their bikes look like they weigh. Their bikes bikes look like a battleship. You know, they have to ride steel. They would never ride anything else, right? They've built these like, again, bumpers around themselves and channeled. There There are even wars internally in cycling over what width tire you're running. When I took my salsa to the local bike shop and it had 40-centimeter touring tires on it, everybody in the shop came out to look at it. Oh, my God, I've never seen a salsa with tires like that. Why would you have those on there? You need new tires. you got to replace those tires. Those tires are too narrow. And I was like, no. And I said to the, the owner, who's a great guy who I really like, he goes, you need new tires. And I go, no, I don't. He goes, no, you don't. So tire width. You literally have divisions internally over tire width that you will take flack for if your tire is too narrow or too wide. That is the stupidity that the online world has brought us, right? Because online, just like QAnon, 
you can find a whole community of people that says, if you're running a tire narrower than 45 mil, you're just not cool. You're not cool. So I just wanted to give a public service announcement here. For those of you who are new to cycling, it does not matter. None of this matters at all one iota because the second you get on your bike and you get wind in your hair and you're going downhill and it reminds you of third grade when you got your first bike and your parents said, whatever you do, you little rat, do not go past the end of the block. And you were like, F you, I'm going. And you did. And you got spanked. And you were like, that spanking was totally worth it because I saw a glimpse of the outside world. That same feeling happens as an adult. And don't let these morons pull you down into this odd weird weirdness. And, and frankly, it will happen too at a bike shop because you have mountain bike, downhill mountain bike shops. You have roadie shops. Now you've got gravel shops. You have to be careful about who you engage with at a bike shop because they typically have an agenda. And if they're a 1970s wool-wearing, breaking-away hipster wannabe, they're going to steer you in that direction. They want you in their camp. So you have to do a little R&D. If you have any questions about anything, reach out to me. I wear a cycling bib. I wear a cycling clothing from a company called Voler or Voler, V-O-L-E-R. It's expensive, but it's really good. And I didn't know I had been wearing Voler for the last five years. But five years ago, my brother, I think it was the last time he gave me a present, was like five years ago, he and his wife gave me a cycling kit, a, a bib and a jersey. And I have worn it. It's the only cycling bib I ha jersey I have, literally. And I have worn it thousands, probably thousands of times. And it had rotted out completely. And I realized, oh, that's a Voler. And I thought, well, if it lasted that long, then it's a great brand and it's built. So I, I, I wear that. Sometimes I'll wear mountain biking shorts with the chamois inside. If I'm going into town and I got to run errands and I don't want to wear spandex. And then other times, it just doesn't matter. It's whatever works for you. So don't sweat it. Don't let anybody you know, pressure you into thinking you have to be a certain way in the cycling world. It's a waste of energy. Point number two, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, a, a version of this. Oh, let, before I go to cycling, before I go to point two, I want to tell you a story. So I live in this rural community, semi-rural community, and there's an email chain that goes around about like, you know, so-and-so's house got broken into or somebody dumped trash on this road or the, the mailbox was pried open. That happened last week. Mail, mail theft and crime out here is, is absolutely beyond uh, anything I've ever seen. And there was this thing that came along that said a hiker had an encounter with a mountain biker on the rail trail. And the rail trail is a trail that's awesome that I ride on all the time that runs from Santa Fe out to a small and old historic railroad town called Lamy. It's 18 miles outside of Santa Fe. And it's awesome. And it's this improved trail. All but the last section is improved. It's like 10 feet wide. It's super easy to ride on. And then you've got single track all over the place. So on the southern side of the rail trail, you have the improved trail. And on the north side, you have single track. And I ride both. And this person had said, we had an encounter with a mountain biker who apparently the encounter did not go well. They, they were sort of pointing the finger at the mountain biker, which is legit because you have, and, I, and, and so I wrote this letter and I said, okay, as someone who rides both sides, who's an avid cyclist, let me just say this. Most cyclists are cool, but we do have prickly members of the community and there's not much you can do about it. And so, but I said, for the most part, everything is cool. But I said, from a cycling perspective, let me give you a little taste of what happens with people walking and people on horses. I said, when it comes to horses, and there's a lot of horses out here, everybody defers. You have to defer to the horse if you're a hiker or a cyclist. It makes sense. Horses have hooves. 
They are, uh, they are prone to spook. You don't want anyone injured. Every cyclist I know yields to horses. Hikers is another matter. I said most of the time, most of us, if I'm, if I'm riding on the single track, and this just happened a couple uh, last week, I look up and there's four elderly women walking, which is great. They're out and they're on the single track side, not on the easy side, they're on the hard side. They're walking right down the middle of the, of the path, of the single track. And there's two, it's like a Jeep trail. So there's a single track, two, two lanes of single track. And they're walking right down the middle. I can't go around them. So I, sl- I come to a, basically almost a stop. I'm going as slow as I can without falling over. And I'm clicking my brake handles and I skid my rear tire and I say, good morning. And they don't hear me. So now I'm like, tr- I'm literally, if I had a, a, a drum set, I'd be playing on the drum set to get attention so that I could go around them. And I do. And I can tell even at that point, they're kind of ticked off at me because they have to move off the trail to let me by. So I wrote this letter and I said, look, what typically happens with a cyclist and a hiker is most of the time everything is fine. But I said, there's two things. I go, one, people on their phone on Facebook or two, on their phone with music, walking down the center of the trail, completely oblivious to anyone around them. And I said, when you come up behind them, you click your brakes, you skid your tire, you say good morning, you say good afternoon, because they're so oblivious, they don't know you're there until you're right on top of them. And you're going like a mile an hour. And it scares them. And instead of turning around and saying, oh my God, I'm so sorry. I was completely in my own world. I was on Facebook or I was listening to music and I wasn't paying attention. And I know I shouldn't be in the middle of the trail because it's a two-way. It's like a road. You're supposed to stay to the right. They start screaming at you. And it's your fault. And I told them, I said, you'll get, they will curse at you. They will scream at you. They will tell you're going too fast. Even though you've been parked behind them for 30 seconds trying to get their attention, they ignore all of that and they accuse you. I said, that happens all the time. The second thing that's been happening twice in my neighborhood since the beginning of the year, twice since the beginning of the year, and then several times on the, on the improved trail, is people with dogs off a leash that have tried to bite me. Twice I had to jump off my bike and use the bike as a shield while their dog was attacking my frame, while the owner, and this is what I said to them, I said, by the way, this happened twice in, in this neighborhood, and I know you're dog owners out there, I have never encountered a dog owner whose dog was trying to attack me who said to me, Oh yeah, you better be careful. That dog bites. They all say the same thing. My dog doesn't bite, and they claim they have voice control over the dog. I said, not none of these people have voice control. None of their dogs are on the leash, which is illegal. They're supposed to, there's a leash ordinance out here. And three, they all their dogs bite because I have teeth marks on my frame pack to prove it. And I wrote them, and there was pretty much accepted okay. There was one person who immediately wrote back and said, my dog is off the leash all the time, but I have total voice control. I have no belief whatsoever that that person has voice control over the dog because I've yet to see it in my neighborhood. And the two people whose dogs almost got me had absolutely zero voice control other than telling me, oh, my dog doesn't bite. So if you have a dog that bites, keep him on a leash. If you have a dog who doesn't bite, you should keep him on a leash if there's other people around, especially when there's a leash ordinance. And by the way, when you're walking on a hike and bike trail, it's two-way like a road. Stay to the right. Don't wander in the middle. And leave your Facebook at home for a while. Leave your face at home if you can. All right, point number two, Frontline China. Frontline, if you don't know it, is an actual journalism organization. Think about that. Harken back to the 1850s, real journalism. Uh, This is an actual journalism site. They did a, a piece on China and the COVID virus. Watch it. It's actual journalism. I, I made the fatal mistake of watching the frontline piece on China and then accidentally turning on the satellite radio in the van and it went on CNN. And CNN is the most awful 
news organization slash dog and pony show slash charlatan slash awfulness entertainment not nonstop advertisements just horrid how anyone can call that a news organization is beyond me you have a bunch of pouting uh pouting talking heads who can't who can't hide their political bent and their political point of view it's awful msnbc is bad too fox is horrible I can't look at any of that stuff. I can't listen to it anymore. And I love listening to right-wing radio. I've done it for years. Again, I told you my father was completely radicalized by it, so I've been listening to it since I was in middle school. I absolutely love it because it is so whacked out there, but so incredibly effective. You know, again, I watched it turn my father. I watched it turn other people. I watched it just take over like the uh, an audio coronavirus Back when it really landed in the uh, you know early Rush Limbaugh areas, the who was the guy that did? Um, oh, there was a, a guy before that that I'm spacing out on. But anyway, watch the Frontline China piece. It's very interesting about COVID, how it was handled, um, sort of where it first popped. You know, the seafood market, all that. It's great. Just watch it. Trust me. Okay. So I want to talk a little bit about YouTube. Um, I get a lot of questions about my YouTube channel. And again, this is a, a mystifying part of my job that people don't seem to understand. My YouTube channel is like way down the list on my daily to-dos. I am not a YouTuber. YouTubers do YouTube. That is not me. That will never be me. That is like a, you know, I get up in the morning, my five, six, seven down on my to-do list. Like today, I'm going to do this lame film of me on camera for probably 20 minutes answering questions that people have sent me. That's pretty lame. That's not a high priority. No one at Blurb is asking me for that. Nobody. Nobody really anywhere except for the people who ask the questions are asking me for that. So YouTube, if I was going to make a movie about YouTube, it's already been made, and it's called The Grifters with, with um, John Cusack and uh, Annette Benning. It's a great movie. And YouTube is really in great part about The Grift. And we've talked about this before, and I've talked to Blurb about this, and I've talked to everyone about this that I can. Um, most people know this and understand it, but a lot of other people don't. They still think there's some validity. And yes, the, you know, if you're trying to figure out how to unclog a toilet and there's a YouTube film, great. Oftentimes, that's just some handyman saying, look, this is how you do that. And it could have 10 million views. And then turn that handyman, he starts thinking, oh my God, I just did this one film and it got 10 million views. Maybe I should monetize and boom. And that's where the grift starts. Anybody who's on YouTube is facing, facing this question all the time. How far do you want to go? How far down this rabbit hole of deception? And I'm using that word specifically. It, it's, you know, Instagram is the same. They're all the same where you're kind of like, I want to post this, but I can't. Now, this reminds me, I used to work with a guy at Blurb, a guy I really like who's intelligent. He's no longer at Blurb. He lives overseas. And we, we traveled all over the place. We traveled all through Europe. We traveled through Canada. We traveled, went to Australia twice. We did five-city trips in Australia. He was a really, really smart guy. He was absolutely petrified of public speaking, which was hilarious because I love public speaking and I'm not afraid. And I would try to get him to do little public speaking things and just watch him melt. And I found it wildly entertaining. But when I was hanging out with him, it was the, during the first days of my starting to understand what being online meant social stuff and saying, man, and I would talk to him and I'd go, I, I, I don't think this, I think this is bad. 
and he's a lot younger than I am. And he kept saying, you're overreacting. You know, you're, this is, you're exaggerating. You're overreacting. Can't be that bad. Can't be that bad. And he finally came around. He came around one day on a, we were on a trolley in Toronto and he looked over at me and he said, you know, you're, you're actually right about how destructive this is because we were watching these people around us. And he was like, wow, this is bad. This is not good for us as a culture and society. And I was like, yeah. And I said, guess what? You'd get ready to take a ration of shit because everyone around you is still on this stuff. So that was sort of the first time that I was like, wow. Well, I noticed something the other day is YouTube has, has launched many careers, right? And there are kids out there who are making like a million dollars a month on YouTube with like really silly film stuff, but it doesn't really matter the quality. It's, you just strike on something that r resonates with people or other kids and boom, you're off to the races. And a part of me is like, that's awesome because then you don't have to get stuck in the traditional channels of saying, oh, I want to have my own television show. I have to go to a TV network. I have to get approval. It has to be audited. It's going to be controlled. There's going to be advertising I don't want. No, you just do it on your own. So that part is cool. But one of the people who was launched by YouTube, who I had not paid attention to in a long time, I went and I was like, wow, haven't heard anything from this person. And I went and looked him up and there was nothing, nothing. They're there, but there's nothing new and there hasn't been anything new for a long time. And, and I was like, wow, how the mighty have fallen. Because no matter how high up that scale you go, internally, you are having that dialogue. And you know that what you are doing is not real. You, what you are doing is giving yourself away. You're giving the real you away in favor of the fake you. And no matter, and I looked up this guy's estimated net worth, which was 16 million bucks. And what I saw, and I looked up some news interviews, and I looked up some things that were outside of his channel, and what I saw staring back at me was misery, was one of the most unhappy people I've seen in a long time. I did not feel for him at all. This was a self-inflicted wound. He knew it from day one. He cashed out. Now, the cool part for him is he survived, right? He didn't, he didn't do something horrible to himself or anyone else. And he can walk away with uh, not having to work again or really choosing, picking his battles from here on out as to what he wants to do. Does he want to make a real contribution? Whatever it is. And so he's the lucky one who got out without the full destruction, but he got out. You know, I mean, that, that to me was like a, an absolute damaging is not the right word, but a critical view, that's the pencil beam of light coming into the, to the core of what the platform is and saying it's all a lie based on the, the almighty dollar. So again, how far you want to go? I made a deal with the devil. I'm on YouTube, right? I mean, I'm never going to be that guy. I, one, I'm not talented like he is, but two, I just couldn't do it. I cannot for the life of me. So I have a couple of interviews coming up and I hope they ask me about this stuff because there are so few people talking about this because the industry itself, especially like the photography industry, it's a facade. Everybody's playing along because it's, it's a tricky time to make a living as a creative. COVID did not help at all, made it exponentially more difficult but people are playing this lie. We've been playing it since 1997. I've been in the middle of it, watching and listening and watching the foundation crack and saying, hey, does anybody else see the water rising? And everyone's like looking up at the ceiling saying, I don't hear anything, la, 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 la. So guess what? The, it's uh, time to reap the whirlwind to use a line from Young Guns 1 and 2. Time to reap the whirlwind, Sheriff Brady. Okay. 
Uh, all right, let's talk. We're on what that was point number four, in case you were wondering. Point number five is about dreaming. I mentioned this a couple weeks ago, or maybe even the last podcast, how important I think dreaming is. I think daydreaming is even more important than the dreams you have at night. But I had a dream at night, and I'm hoping someone can interpret this. I was on a bombing run. I was in like a SR-71, but it was modified, and I was on a bombing run, and I was the one in charge of loading the magazine. And you know that that um, there was a plane they were using during Vietnam. I think they called it Puff, Puff the Magic Dragon. It's like a C-130 that has the gun in the nose that shoots like 10,000 rounds a minute or second, and it's just like, it just goes... And then the, the like a patch of jungle just explodes, whatever that is. I was kind of in that, but it was also like an SR-71. And I think it was that because I had seen a friend who went up in a SR-71. And I think that residue was bouncing around in my brain. And they were like, Milner, get back there and load the magazine. And somehow in loading the magazine, I fell out of the plane. And so, which is not good. That's not really optimal if you're trying to load the magazine. So I fall out of the plane and I'm falling but the plane is falling at the same rate. And I'm holding this magazine in my hand. And I'm looking up, and I'm just I'm vertical, and I'm, I'm clutching this magazine of, of, of rounds. And, and the plane is falling, too, and we're falling at the same speed. So I'm right underneath the wing. And I'm like, man, I hope I don't get caught in the engine. That would suck. And then suddenly, I'm, as we, I get really close to the ground, I'm in the part of the dream where you can't move. You know, you have to move. I'm like, I'm trying to pull the ripcord. Somehow I have a parachute on. Don't think logically. Just go with it. So I have a parachute on, and I'm like, you know, I might want to pull this. I, I can see, like, kids on the playground, so I think I'm at the level. I'm not an expert on, on parachuting, but I'm pretty sure I should pull it about now, and I can't. My arm's, like, in molasses, and I'm, I finally pull this thing, and then I'm, like, X-game parachuter. I'm, suddenly, I'm an expert, and I'm skimming along the surface of this park in the middle of a city, and there's families and kids, and I'm, like, ripping down on this parachute, and I'm like, God, I am so cool. And everyone's looking at me like, wow, that guy's amazing. That guy's a parachutist and he's cool and I'm sure his hair is perfect. And like, and I'm like, I'm fine. And the magazine is gone. The planes, I have no idea where the plane is. And then I just come skimming in and do this perfect like landing and cut the chute away. It's like James Bond and it shoot flies off into some, you know, playground full of kids and they're all piled underneath it. And then I'm in a factory on a conveyor belt and the plane is now there underground on the conveyor belt. And now they said... You, were, you went AWOL, and now you're in trouble, and you have to do manual labor. And then I woke up. So I don't know what that means, but if anyone can decipher that uh, and how it would impact, let's say, my YouTube channel, please let me know. All right, point number seven is about social media. Not social media. <laughs> Just kidding. It's about the Super Bowl, which I watched about five minutes of and was kind of embarrassed and turned it off and watched a movie about Gloria Steinem with my wife. Oof. That was maybe a bad move. By the, end, by the end of the movie, my wife looked over at me like, you a-hole, your, your, your coasting trip, your vacation in this marriage is over. That's the look I got without a word being uttered. Gloria Steinem turned my wife on me in an hour and 45 minutes. And I was like, I'm in deep trouble now because I'm not married to her anymore. I'm married to a version of Gloria Steinem and I will pay. But it was still, it was a good movie, and it was way better than watching the Super Bowl. Five minutes of the Super Bowl was kind of um, really bad. Um, not to say, and look, I didn't watch any football this year. Um, and before the game came on, I, and before I realized it was being streamed live for free, so I, I get this app, and I was like, all right, I'm going to watch five minutes. I've watched football all year. And the five minutes before the game starts, I hear, you know, they're overanalyzing every conceivable possible thing. 
remember, I've not seen football all year. I don't know. I know Kansas City and I know Tampa because I'm a Saints fan, was a Saints fan, NFC South, Tampa's in the division. So in five minutes before the game, I find out that the offensive line of Kansas City is either hurt or out with COVID. The star running back they had in last year's Super Bowl sat out because of COVID. And Tampa has an amazing defense. And in my head, I go, Tampa, blowout. Okay, five minutes of analyst. That's all I hear. I go, okay, Tampa's defense, they play NFC South football. Defense, run the ball, best quarterback of all time, great game manager, smart coach, Tampa blowout. Five minutes of analyze. And, and then, but as I'm watching the, the analysts, they're like, oh, Kansas City all the way, Kansas City all the way, Kansas City all the way. And I'm thinking, man, there's a point of over-analysis where you just lose all common sense. But anyway, I was kind of proud of myself that I mentally picked uh, Tampa in a blowout. But I heard something during the game that kind of rankled me the wrong way, which was like, America needs a victory. America needs a win. That's what I heard. And of course, you cannot listen to these football analysts because it's embarrassing. It's just awful, like what comes out of their mouths. And it's kind of dumb. And the commentating is kind of dumb and stuff. And look, I don't, it's not that I don't hate football. I lost a lot of respect for the league and the people running the league and sort of, but when I heard America needs a win, and they were like, the Super Bowl is that win. I thought, how misguided is that ideology, but how apropos for the time? Because I was like, okay, they just want everyone to play along. First of all, you had a commissioner who bowed down to Donald Trump for four years. So that's strike one. I was like, do we need a victory? How about a successful functioning government? No, too late. Too, too late for that. How about a functioning healthcare system? Nope, too late. How about a national mask mandate program that someone will actually follow? Nope, too late. We blew that as well. But football, oh yeah, sure. Finally, we have a win to talk about, which is football. And then comes all the after parties with maskless people, super spreader events. And I'm like, how... If that is not a microcosm of the difficulties that we are facing as a country, where it's like nothing to see over here, keep moving, keep moving, nothing to see, no functioning government, no mass mandate, no functioning healthcare program, absolute rampant corruption, second uh, trial happening for a second impeachment, which could have been his 20th impeachment during the last four years, just the call to Georgia alone, that should have been a third impeachment, on and on and on. And I'm like, it's not, these are not only not wins, these are major losses, right? We, we haven't, you can't put the genie in the bottle. You can't hide the fact that this is happening. And yet here we are watching a football game with fake stands and people sort of wearing masks and not wearing masks and then after parties without. And I just thought, man, this is not pretty. And then by the way, everything I've heard about it after the fact from people who watched the game was it sucked. It was a blowout. So not good. Um, we do need a win America, but it doesn't start with Tom Brady. Sorry, Tom Brady. Uh, okay, this is another peculiar thing. This is point number eight. A puke, and and the, uh, by the way, I'm going to end this podcast again with a puke story, another puke story. And this is not going to be a reoccurring theme, but it's going to be, it was last week and this week, because this was a good one I forgot about, which talks about a lot of different things. Hang on, smoothie break. Okay, so in my circles, for the most part, because I'm a lefty, communist, atheist, liberal, according to some of my friends, even though I do not identify with either party. I just think our political system is a wreck. But I have friends who, are, who claim to be democratic, 
They claim to be Democrats, but they're not. They're Republicans. But because the Republicans have been associated with Donald Trump and they're just taking a beating and the Republican Party looks really bad right now, they won't admit they're Republicans. So they send me emails. And these emails come in and they're basically they're like sleight of hand emails where they're they're backhandedly attacking every single thing that the Democrats are doing while claiming that they don't like the Republicans. And here's the thing. It is 100% okay to be Republican. It is. There is nothing wrong with being Republican. Now, there are versions of the Republican Party. The Rand Paul, Ted Cruz, Josh Hawley, you know, I forget, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, Donald Trump side of the Republican Party that is, in my, for me personally, is just horrific. It's embarrassing, disgusting. These are horrible people. I don't know how you look at the data in front of us and not realize that these people are, are majorly flawed people. But there's another side of the Republican Party. And if you just talk about policy and going all the way back in time, Republican policy, if that's the policy you believe in, there's nothing wrong with it. And so it's weird for me to get emails from people who are clearly not Democrats, but are claiming to be Democrat. This happens at least once or twice a week to me from people that are scattered all over the world. And I just want to say, it's okay to be Republican. We have to, I've said this a million times, we have to quit drawing lines. It doesn't work. It doesn't help. It's only going to make things worse. If you're a Republican, good. Own it. Acknowledge the good side and the downside. And the same for the Democrats. If you're a Democrat, if you're a Libertarian, if you're an Independent, great. Just be realistic about the data that's in front of us. There have been plenty of crooked, awful Democrats in the past, and there will be plenty in the future. Same for Republicans, same for Libertarians, same for Independents. We're human beings. There is nothing perfect about us. Anytime we enter an equation anywhere, we ruin it. That is what our species does. We have done that since we drug ourselves out of the primordial ooze. We started screwing things up. What did Cro-Magnon do? immediately killed off every other version of, of humanoid that was walking the planet, right? So we've got millions of years or 10,000, I don't know, someone out there who knows the history of our species better than I do. We've got tens of thousands of years of evidence about how scummy we are as a species. So this is just the little, this is one layer that's so thin it's transparent in our history. Get used to it. Whatever side you're on, fine. Just be realistic, be kind, be thoughtful, be open-minded, move on. Okay, number nine. Point number nine is another sports story. And uh, when I grew up, boxing was a big deal. You had Muhammad Ali still floating around. You had Marvin Hagler. You had Tommy Hearns. You had Sugar Ray Leonard, amongst many others. Boxing, Jerry Cooney, uh, Randall Tex Cobb. Boxing was a big deal. Muhammad Ali was the most, and is still, is still to this day, the most recognizable athlete in the world. Now, Lionel Messi would be up there too, Ronaldo, the, uh, the football greats. But boxing was a huge deal. Now, boxing historically has been incredibly corrupt. I mean, incredibly corrupt, comically corrupt. We've seen all kinds of cheating. We've seen scandals. We've seen drugs. We've seen boxers with cement in their gloves. We've seen everything you could possibly imagine. And it's still, it's still bad. 
But boxing took a fall recently that to me was kind of like the death rattle, right? Like it's your last breath, you're death, death rattling. They're not even checking vitals anymore. It's over. Because of a variety of reasons. One, interest in boxing has fallen off. And you still have amazing fighters. You've got um, Canelo Alvarez. You've got that kid, um, the Mexican, I think he's Mexican, kid who just won, who beat Super G. I can't remember his name. He's got a very peculiar first name. Uh, He's amazing. There's a lot of great fighters out there. But the interest in boxing fell away. And simultaneously, you had the rise of MMA. And MMA has completely and utterly taken over boxing, you know, and you have a little bit of crossover with people like Conor McGregor fighting um, Floyd Mayweather, which was a circus and idiotic and stupid and made both sports look bad. But there's so much money being thrown around. There's hundreds of millions of dollars. And so these guys aren't stupid. They go, look, we can cash out. Conor McGregor doesn't have to work ever again. It doesn't matter if he ever wins another fight. Floyd Mayweather has made tens of hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars in his career. I get it. But something weird happened recently, which is there is, um, and I don't know who these people are. I've never been on their channel. I've never seen anything they've done. But there's two brothers who are big YouTube stars, and they suddenly decided they were going to become boxers. And so they've been fighting these odd fights with like other YouTubers and um, like a basketball pro pro basketball player that went in and they got and got knocked out by one of these brothers. And these brothers aren't stupid. They know how the YouTube con works. They're incredibly successful on YouTube, and, they're, and they fancy themselves athletes, so they're looking across the table, and they're going, how do we merge these two things? So they started calling out boxers. They're calling out MMA fighters, and they're trying to get – and they're hooking them in. Now, initially, everyone looks at these guys and says, you're a joke. You're not, a, you're not skilled boxers. You know, you're decent athletes, but you're not skilled boxers. If you got in the ring with a real boxer, you'd probably get killed. Um, but the, the, the MMA folks are, are kind of playing catch up to the YouTube folks and they're looking out there and saying, yeah, this is embarrassing for both sports and for YouTube, but there's a lot of money here. And so now apparently there is an, an officially scheduled bout between one of these brothers and a guy named Ben Askren, who was an MMA guy who um, is kind of funny. His, his nickname is Funky, Ben Funky Askren. And Ben is a, was a collegiate wrestler. He's a world-class wrestler. He is one of the worst strikers I've ever seen in MMA. I mean, horrible striker. It's embarrassing. But once he gets his hands on you and the wrestling starts, you're done. He's like, you know, he's taking everybody out. Well, he got knocked out a couple of years ago. He, it was, he was the recipient of the fastest knockout in MMA history, uh, a guy threw a f- he the, they ring the bell the fight starts and his opponent runs across the ring and throws a flying knee and knocks him out. Well, I mean cold. He's out forever and he basically retired from MMA after that. But he's been called out by these YouTuber guys, and they're going to fight. My guess is the YouTuber guy knocks out this MMA guy in the first round because he is legitimately one of the worst strikers I've ever seen. Um, that's just not his game. He's one of those sort of one-sided MMA fighters, but the one side he had was as good or better than anybody else out there. So he was able to establish a really good record. But it kind of speaks, I mean, think about this. You're taking these two massive industries, which are now merging with this sort of kind of YouTube charade, but it's not a charade because the guys are training. The brothers are training. They're boxers. They're they're good athletes. They look big. I don't know what weight, weight division they're fighting in, but it's a very odd spectacle that to me was kind of like, there's nothing sacred left, you know, and, and again, it's na- naivete on my part about 
there being any kind of sanctity left in any of these endeavors, because money obviously is the driving factor here. We're a capitalistic society. I get it. Um, if someone gave me 16 million bucks to fight someone, any of these people anywhere at any time, I'd be in the ring right now taking a beating. I mean, I'd probably, my goal would be to survive, to use my money. There would be no outcome other than me being knocked out in some vicious fashion. But for 16 mil, I would do it right now. I would get up from this table and start swinging gloves or no gloves. I would bare knuckle Russian fight. I don't care whatever, for that kind of money. So I get it, but it's an odd spectacle. If you're watching any of this, tell me what you think. Is this as weird as I think it is? Okay, point number 10, we're going to move on here. Uh, these are really good points. The last three points are good. They're better than the, than the last three. The, so the last three that I'm getting to are better than the last three that I already spoke about. The first one is texting. So I talk a lot about social media and sort of the destructiveness of that. But I, if I had to line these up, what I've realized recently is, and I don't know if your phone is like mine, but my phone is a constant barrage of texting all day long. And it's coming from everywhere. It's family members, it's friends, and it's a lot of work texting. You know, yesterday, someone in the work call had their internet down, and they were like an important person in our company. So everything had switched over to text. Texting is one of the most cerebrally destructive things I've ever seen in my life. If you are someone who needs concentration to accomplish your work, which is me, it is one of the most destructive things I've ever seen in my life. It is like a brain grenade. When the texts come in, it just shatters any sort of calm and focus because it's just relentless and it's all day, every day. Thank God my mother has not figured out the text because my mom calls me now like five, six, seven times a day. And I told you she's losing her short-term memory. Yesterday, we called, had a decent conversation in the morning, and then five minutes later, I'm on a call, and the phone rings, and it's her again, and she's like, you need to fix my ice machine, and I'm like, okay, I'm 800 miles away. I think she thinks I'm my brother who's there, um, and I'm like, I can't answer this call, so she's leaving voicemail messages and then just calling, 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 calling. If she, had, if she could text, I would have to get a new phone. I would have to change my number. But it's bad enough. Yesterday, I probably received at least 100 text messages through the day. And that, I've got to end. I've got to stop that. It's not, I can just feel how bad that is for me personally. And I think it's a, I had a really bad health weekend with Lyme. Um, and I can't officially say I got, you know, suddenly it's Lyme disease again, like I got reinfected. But the feeling I get when I get my bouts with Lyme, and by the way, people, Lyme is a bacteria, not a virus, and there's no known cure for Lyme disease. Your goal is to become asymptomatic and try to get to, you know, simpatico with the bacteria that's in your body. When the bacteria dies in your body, you go through what's called the Herxheimer response or Herxing, which can make you as sick as what it feels like to have Lyme. Lyme is famous for coming and going, coming and going, disappearing for a year, and then boom, coming back, resistor cells that have gone dormant that come alive in your body, all of this stuff. So this week, uh, Friday night, Friday, I felt amazing. I did 20 miles on my bike right before sundown and I felt great. 10 o'clock that night, it was like you hit me in the head with a sledgehammer and I was like, oh no, here it is. It's this brain fog that is so intense and so particular to Lyme. I've never felt it any other way. And all day Saturday, I was useless. And all day Sunday, I was useless, which sucks for me because one, I'm active. And two, I had a whole agenda that I just had to scrap. And then by Monday morning, I was starting to come out of it. Yesterday, I felt pretty decent. Uh, and then today, I feel, I feel pretty good. But texting, 
that brain fog with Lyme, which doctors will tell you is, is, is um, in, your, in your head. It's so freaking insulting. It's, it makes me want to spit. But they'll say, oh, that's just in your head. It's not. It is the, the most unbelievably debilitating aspect of Lyme is not the physical destruction. It's the cognitive destruction. And it's fog. It feels like you're a half second behind everything. You want to know what the worst thing is when you have brain fog? The absolute worst, most destructive, hor- horrible thing on the face of the earth? A text message. It is, if you think text messages suck, anyone with Lyme will tell you, you have no idea how bad it sucks until you have Lyme and get a text message. So I've got to remedy this. I want to stop texting entirely. That would be ideal. I don't see that happening, but I'm going to do everything I can to stop it. Okay, point number 11 is about sponsorship. Um, I get a lot of questions about sponsorship. I get questions that range from, why are you not sponsored by a camera brand? Why are you not sponsored by X, Y, and Z brands? What sponsors do you have? Why would you take a sponsor, et cetera? So the vast majority of the time, when someone approaches me for sponsorship, I tell them and say, I am not a good person for sponsorship. There are better people. Um, Fuji is never going to sponsor me. Sony is never going to sponsor me. None of these camera companies, like I shot Leica for 25 years. I couldn't get them to return an email or repair my equipment. They are never, they don't care, right? These, these, the brands like that are not, are not going to sponsor me. And plus there are way better people for them to sponsor. Am I going to sit and make a film about the menus on a Fuji? No, I hate that stuff. It's boring. Anyone who would watch a film like that is out of their mind in my opinion, but I'm in the minority. There's millions of people who would rather look at menus on a Fuji than actually go use the Fuji to make pictures. Fewer still that knew what good pictures are. Fewer still that would know how to put those in a cohesive body of work. And fewer still that would know how to do all the above and then put it in print form. That's what I'm interested in. These companies are not interested in any of that. They want the people who love unboxing films. They want people who want to look at the menus. They want people who talk all day long about doing stuff they're never going to do. When it comes to sponsorship, I look at companies, and on those rare occasions when a company will reach out to me, I have got to know the company intimately, and I've got to know whatever it is that we are talking about in in tandem in sponsorship, I have got to know them intimately. I want to know that product inside and out. Does it work? Does it last? Can I, can I say to someone, this is $120. Is this worth your money? And I can say, well, here is my personal experience with this over the past year. You know, I've used this, whatever, 212 times over the last year, and this is how it works. So yes, I can endorse this product. Those are rare. Uh, you know, like I said, I turn most of the sponsorships down. I turn photo assignments down. Uh, when people reach out to buy prints, I say no. I'm completely antisocial for the most part in my personal life. So there is one sponsorship that may or may not happen this year. I've put a year of time in researching and working with the product, and <clears throat> and I believe in the product. So if it happens, it happens, and if it doesn't, I'm okay because I'm trucking along, and I've got a job. I've got a job that's <clears throat> that's a lot of work, it's invasive, but it pays me really well and I'm super thankful for it because you know, it's not a pretty picture out there. All right, last point. <clears throat> As we're getting to the hour, last sip of smoothie. Mm, it's a bit tart. My mouth is watering, which is good because this is a puke story. And I know you out there who want to hear this. 
but it's way more than a puke story. <clears throat> and it wasn't me puking. So when I was in uh, high school, I'm getting out of high school and a friend of mine comes up to me and he says, Hey, I just joined the merchant Marines. And I was like, well, sucks to be you. And he's like, well, it's not, it's part of the, it's part of the merchant Marines, but it's a summer school program out of this South Texas school. And you spend four months on this boat and you study to be an engineer or a navigator on a commercial vessel. And I was like, none of that sounds appealing to me. And this, I will not name my friend, but his nickname would soon be Peachy. He has a real name, but uh, at the time, he had not yet acquired the name Peachy, but he would have it over this next coming four months. So Peachy says, hey, you know, I signed up. And again, you, it's part of the Navy so you have to wear uniforms and there's regulations and inspections and you're assigned to like a E-Company 3rd Platoon, which is what I was in. But technically it's summer school at sea, right? That was kind of the program. But compared to what summer school at seas look like today, where people are wearing like civilian clothes and you're, you're, it looks like a vacation where you're touring like the Med or whatever, this was not like that at all. First of all, the ship was a 463-foot troop transport from World War II that was used as a morgue ship to take bodies off of Iwo Jima. It was not nice. There, you know, it was, a, it was an old, crusty military ship, and it ne- was in need of a lot of work. It didn't burn diesel fuel. It burned a paste, this dense, dense paste that came in these 50-gallon drums, and you had to go down into a place. Okay, so let me back up a little bit. So I, like an idiot— my friend says, you know, tells me about this. And I'm like, this sounds hellish. This sounds like a prison term. And he goes, but here's where the ship is going. We're going to St. Thomas. We're going to Rio. We're going, and he's naming, and I was like, that's it. I'm in. I want to go see those places. And I have no money. And this is a way to do this and see these places. So you get to port, you know, you get three, four days, whatever, depending on your rank. I don't know any of this yet. I end up in South Texas in this military barracks, getting my head shaved. And I was like, this was five minutes into the ordeal. And I'm like, this is a bad idea. This is a monumentally bad idea. So we get on the ship. The ship is overcrowded because another merchant marine vessel was in dry dock in Galveston and blows a boiler, and all those guys are stranded. So we somehow, I'm not involved in this, obviously. I am, I am the lowest rank you can possibly be. I am total human scum. But somehow all of these extra guys are on our ship. And these are New England, Boston, hardcore, rowdy, fighting guys, right? And so there were strict rules on the ship because of you, you can't have an insurrection at sea. You can't have mutiny at sea. If you hit another um, sailor, they would literally turn that ship to whatever port was closest by and boot, boot you off. You were on your own. There were lots of strict rules to keep us under control, which is smart because it's like Lord of the Flies. It was immediate savagery from day one. So we get on the ship, <clears throat> and it was basically about— survival and it was about like partnering up and having people you know higher ups and higher ranks like protecting you you every morning you had to get up at like four in the morning and clean some section of the ship which was horrible and some of the sections were easy like running a vacuum cleaner in a classroom whereas others were like okay we need you to go down in the dark with a miner's light into the hull of the ship and scrape rust off the inside that was one of the hellish ones that felt like the the trash compactor scene in star wars it was horrible the food was beyond horrible. I mean, I was skinny. I'm still skinny now. And I was like losing weight right and left. So we start hitting these ports and, you know, you start getting into the, into the groove. I have no interest in being a navigator 
or an engineer on a commercial vessel. But I ended up in E Company 3rd Platoon, which was an engineering platoon. And at times, you, one of the duties that you had was to climb down into this place called Shaft Alley, which is where the ship, with the furnace that ran the ship, you had to take spoonfuls of this paste and shovel it into this furnace. And it was like 150 degrees in here. You had to take like eight-minute shifts. You'd go down in there, melt, and then come up, and someone would replace you to fire this thing. And then all the while out the smokestacks, it's just spewing this like toxic black haze as far as you can see out on the ocean. The other thing we did was all of the garbage was tossed overboard. <laughs> let, me, let me repeat that. So the ship had a cook. It was this huge African-American guy who was awesome. And the cleaning stations in the kitchen were some of the worst. Like cleaning dishes, pots and pans for you know thousands of people was horrible. But the cook took a liking to one of our roommates and I, and he would give us this duty where you had to go down in the freezers in the bottom of the boat with a walkie-talkie, and they would radio what food, frozen food needed to be sent up on these like pulleys and stuff. And it was freezing. I mean, you just go down there with like every piece of clothing on you had and freeze your ass off, but you didn't have to do dishes. So we're out there and we're doing this stuff and we're going from port to port. And uh, I'm, I'm stuck in the kitchen one day. And then the, the cook, this giant guy says, okay, follow me to the fantail, which is the back of the boat. And we got these like dozens and dozens of trash bags. And so I'm thinking, oh, there's an incinerator. We're going to throw them in something. We get to the fantail and he goes, throw them over. And I thought it was a test. Like I would throw one over and then he would like punch me in the back of the neck and say, what are you thinking, you idiot? You're not going to throw trash in the ocean. No, um, everything went overboard. So you poked holes in the trash bags and threw them over the fantail. So you're out in the open ocean, and on calm days, you could see a line of trash to the horizon that came off of our one ship and this smokestack black fog that we're leaving behind. It was awful. I mean, even as a kid who was so completely clueless about life at that time, I was like, this is wrong from every direction. How on earth did we get here as a species that we're doing this to the, to the planet? And so I, can't, I don't know what they're doing now. But I'm getting sidetracked because the puke story is out there hovering. Okay, so I've been on the ship now for about three months, three and a half months. We've docked in a variety of different places. Um, I've broken my ankle or torn ligaments or both. I get it x-rayed in Grenada. They have no real x-ray machine. Uh, I, I'm hobbling around on crutches. And so I, we're pulling into a port, Trinidad. And I know by this time, I know the captain of the ship because we're playing on the same basketball team. He's the single worst basketball player I've ever seen in my life. If you threw him, if you passed him the ball, he would shoot no matter where. He was like 0 for 5,000 on the trip. Our team had won like one game. He's horrible. But we're like kind of buds now, at least, at least as far as a, an idiot low-level person and a captain can be. And he pulls me aside before we get to Trinidad. And he goes, hey, you need to, you got to watch your ass in this port. So by the way, when our ship's dock at port in these countries... We're not docking where the cruise ships are. We're docking in the red light districts in the hardcore port sections where, like in places in Brazil, the military would come on our ship and say, look, if you get in trouble in these areas, we are not coming to help you. Um, you're on your own, and you're probably going to die. And so we lost, one of my roommates was, was gone, never came back. They never found him in Brazil. He was supposed to, you know, we're supposed to show up to take off and he never comes. And that's a whole nother story that I'll tell you at some point, because I almost disappeared with him. I made one of those little decisions in my life that at the time did not seem like it would be monumental, but it potentially saved my life. 
that's a whole nother story. I don't want to get distracted from the puke. <clears throat> so we get to, we're, we're just about to pull into Trinidad. Captain pulls me aside and he goes, look, you got to watch your ass. This is bad. This where we're pulling in here and from where I know that you guys want to go, which is anywhere we, we could party. So when you dock on a ship like this and you have a military rank, your liberty is determined by your rank. So I was, we were the lowest rank. So you're, you're, you do have liberty in a port if you haven't gotten in trouble at sea. You get off the boat, but your liberty card says, oh, you're this rank, then you have to be back on the ship at 11 p.m. or 12 p.m. or 1 p.m. If you are a minute late, the first mate is standing there in the gangway, and if you are a minute late, they take your liberty card, and you're never getting off the ship again. So you do not want to screw around. So we get to Trinidad, pulls me aside, watch your ass. And then a couple days later, or you know, a couple hours later, I should say, I get another call from the captain, and I'm like, great. I did something wrong. I'm never getting off the ship. And he comes, and he goes, hey, there's somebody that's, that wants, that's going to meet you in Trinidad. And I go, I don't know anybody in Trinidad. And he goes, well, you know, here's his name, and he's going to meet you at this hotel across from where the ship docks, which is in the red light district. And it's pretty gnarly, but, you know, that hotel is a safe zone. So I'm like, I don't know who this person is. And so I get off, and I'm sitting at this pool just drinking beer as fast as I possibly can. And this guy shows up, and he's big. He's a big dude, a huge dude. And he comes over and introduces himself, and I'm like, why do you want to see me? And he goes, oh, I'm the business partner of your sister's boyfriend's dad out of Houston. Oil, underwater oil rig manufacture and repair. And I'm like, oh, so I put it together. And it turns out this guy is awesome. He is salt of the earth incredibly nice, incredibly smart. And Trinidad is a fascinating island. Five distinct races of people, incredibly industrial, but also beautiful sections, a really remarkable history. After this whole thing was over, I tried for a year to get a job in Trinidad in journalism. I tried every single journalistic outlet outlet I could. I was clueless and an idiot and completely untalented. I didn't realize how bad I was. I look back on it now as I know why they didn't hire me. I was terrible. But I wanted to go back and live in Trinidad because it was so fascinating. So we meet this guy, and the guy says to me, look, I talked to the captain. You got four days special liberty, meaning you don't have to go back to the ship until four days from now. So you are coming with me, and I'm going to show you the real Trinidad. And I was like, amazing. So I go back to the ship, grab it like a, I don't know, a toothbrush. That's it. Come back. We walk up to his car. He opens the trunk of his car, and it's like a Toyota Corolla. And the entire trunk is filled with ice and beer. There's like a rubber lining, not, not in a cooler. The entire thing is filled with ice, and there must be 500 beers in the back of this car. And he opens one and hands it to me, and we just drank, I drank beer for four days in a row, amongst other things. And so it was just it was pure debauchery. But as we're leaving this port section of the city, I look over, and I see a friend of mine from the ship who's six foot six basketball player. And he's sitting on a bench by himself with his head down, looking miserable. And I go, Hey, there's my friend, Mike. And Lester goes, it's like Jim Carrey in uh, dumb and dumber where they're picking up hitchhikers. And he's like, well, let him in the back. And so I go, Mike, Mike gets in. Then we come across two other of my friends and he's like, bring them along. So now there's four of us in the back and we're just pounding beers. And so for four days, he takes us all over the island, and it's amazing. I wake up in a fishing village helping people pull in a net. I wake up at a five-star country club 
at a party with people in like tuxedos and I'm wearing like board shorts and a tank top. It was unbelievable. But the last night, as you can imagine, the last night, our liberty is about to go. There's four of us. We are 18 years old. We have unlimited supplies of whatever we want. And we just tie one on. And so my buddy who talked me into this entire endeavor is one of the four people that I'm with. And he is somebody who has not really partied much in his life and doesn't handle alcohol very well. And by now, he has shaved his head, and we have now begun to call him Peachy, as in Peach Fuzz, which sticks still to this day. I talked to him six months ago for the first time in years. Peachy was the first thing that I said. So we go, and somehow during the evening, we eat Kentucky Fried Chicken. Seriously, Kentucky Fried Chicken in Trinidad. Of all the things we could have eaten, of all the amazing food they have there, Somehow that's what we eat because we're all 18-year-old American kids for the most part. And somehow, God knows, this sounded like a good idea at the time. So we eat whatever this is at Kentucky Fried Chicken, and then we go out and we just tie one on. And I sort of come to my senses. You know that little devil that pops up on your shoulder? Maybe it lives on your shoulder. That little devil says, um, yo, Milner, you're in trouble. So we are now on the other side of the island from the ship. Our Liberty card was for 1 a.m., and it's like 12.45. And it's like, the, it's like in the movie Stripes where they wake up in the morning and they've overslept their, their uh, you know, time where they have to go and perform and they all run to the parade ground with their rifles. That was it. I was like 12.45. I snapped to completely sober. Oh, my God. We have to be on that ship in 15 minutes. And, and all of a sudden, the, like the fuzziness around me comes back into view. And, and Lester, the guy that we're with, the Trinidadian guy, says to a buddy of his with a Mazda 626, like a tricked-out Mazda 626, he's like, you got to get him to this ship in 15 minutes. So I remember the four of us are crammed in the backseat of this car, and I remember looking, the speedometer was in kilometers, and the guy's going like, I don't know what it was. It was well over 100 miles an hour um, trying to get us back to the ship. And it was terrifying because it's middle of the night, it's pitch black, and we're doing over 100 miles an hour with the four of us in the back of this car. And consequently, the back of the car, I don't get car sick, I don't get air sick, I don't get seasick. Um, but clearly, Peachy did. Because um, we are now, we're, we're, we're close. We're, we're within minutes of the ship, but it's now right on 1 a.m. We're, we're in trouble. And as we're making the last few corners of this thing, I look over for some reason, and I'm next to Peachy. I look over, and Peachy, who's passed out next to me, suddenly opens his mouth, and without making a sound, there was no sound at all, proceeds to just spray all of us in the back seat of the car. I mean, it's like Mount Pinatubo. It's just, and it's Kentucky Fried Chicken. I guarantee it. It had to be. It was the only other thing, and like beer. And so, and it's, and, and, and I'm mystified because I can't move. We are packed in this car and his mouth opens, he sprays us. And in my head, I'm thinking, oh, wow, that's amazing. There's no sound. I'm ignoring the fact that I'm now wearing the Kentucky Fried Chicken. And I, I keep watching him and he does it again. He opens his mouth, sprays the back of the car. And now it's on all of us. We're all coated in this. Just keeps going. And now I'm not even mad. I'm I'm impressed. I'm like, wow. So we slide to a stop at the port. It's completely abandoned. There's not a single human around. The ship is in front of us, but it's still like a couple hundred yards away. 
The doors of our back of the car fly open. The four of us pile out, covered in this stuff. Peachy's passed out, face down on the ground. My, the two other guys take off running for the ship. And I was like being the martyr. I go, don't worry, I got him. And I try to pick up Peachy, but uh, picking up a human body is like impossible. So it's so heavy. He's so heavy, I can't do it. So I start yelling for the other guys. I can't do it, I can't do it, I can't do it. They come back. Takes all of us to get him. And then you get to the gangplank, which is like this floating stairway. It's hard to walk on your own, let alone carrying a, a inert, you know, this body. And so the four, the three of us drag him up this gangplank and we turn into the center of this, you know, hole in the side of the ship where you're going in and standing there is the first mate. And there's four Liberty cards left on the platform and we're late. We're like, it's 105 and we're covered in puke and Peachy's at our feet and he's like wrapped himself around Mike's legs and he's dry heaving and we're trying to act normal. And it's, again, it's like stripes. Well, we were on our way to the bingo parlor, and one thing led to another. Shut up, soldier. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. That's kind of what it was. And the first mate looks at us with a look of disgust I will never forget. And this is a guy who's probably spent his career in the Navy, so he's seen some pretty bad stuff. Looks at us in disgust and just says, get him out of here. And Mike, because he's 6'6 and his arms are like 12 feet long, swipes all the Liberty cards without anyone seeing. And so now we're like, oh, my God, I think we pulled this off. So we drop Peachy in the bathroom in like a, an inch of standing water, and he wraps himself around one of the, the supports of the bathroom stalls, and he's dry heaving, and we just leave him like good friends do. And we uh, slept it off, and we made it, and the ship left, and we never got reprimanded. We never had our liberty revoked. Peachy survived, and we're still friends. So what a way to end a podcast. I mean, come on, people. This is what life is about. It's about adventure. It's not about Google Docs. It's not about followers and subscriptions. It's about getting dirty. It's about your friend throwing up on you. That's way better than a follow on some social network. I mean, man up and go live your lives. I'll see you next week.